friendly reminder to our listeners out there uh if you ever get a chance to get film profits in the modern day film market do not take it period <laughs> hi and welcome to episode of nation my name is brandon sparks hello friends and enemies i'm thomas horton <laughs> From. That's from the movie. And here, that's a direct quote from the uh, movie. Come on, man. <laughs> and here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. Uh, we're already off to a good start, guys. Uh, today, we kick off our month of screwball comedies, which is the first genre we've ever repeated on the show. We did the we did a one episode genre discussion. About two years ago now, mm-hmm. I think, is what it was. When it was you, Ben, and myself. Um, so yeah, we're repeating this genre because it's February. We we thought romantic comedy might be too big of a genre to cover. but So we want to kind of focus on this specific subgenre of the romantic comedy, which was highly popular in the 1930s and 1940s, during the Great Depression and before World War II. And so, so yeah... Today's movie, we're talking about the Philadelphia story. Before we go into the Philadelphia story, Thomas, let's kind of talk a little bit about what the screwball comedy genre is. Yeah. Like, what do you think of when you think of it? Uh, You know, this is a, it's a genre that is very specific to a certain time, kind of like we just covered with noirs and and neo-noirs. It's a genre that continues to persist. But it's never been as as pure as it was in the like two decades after it immediately took off. Uh, it was really a a response to the Great Depression, um, which is why there's usually a lot of like class warfare involved. Um, but it was also more of a a response to people just wanting something a little bit more because romantic comedies at the time were comedies that were very romantic. They weren't always like we think of now that's like a movie that that kind of pokes fun at love they were comedies but they were also very much about love and believing in love and so the screwball comedy was kind of born out of wanting to satirize love a little bit more and 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 romance and so that's a huge part of the the genre is is having a little bit more fun with the whole romance part of the the genre and then also like i said class warfare there's usually our two main characters are going to be from different uh social classes it's going to be a lot of kind of making fun of the wealthy or showing just how the wealthy and the poor tend to clash uh and then there's also usually and and we talked about this a lot in our one episode when we covered it but but there's this one the the female character has kind of come to be referred to as the hawksian woman because howard hawks was was so good at, at writing and directing for this style but the female character is usually the the focus in these movies and it's usually the stronger yeah the stronger of the two characters she kind of drives the plot along and a lot of these movies are about that kind of uh battle of the sexes and for the time in the 1930s and 40s that it was very revolutionary to kind of flip it and have the female character be the strong one in the relationship yeah it was usually like a big key as you're saying to that to the screwball comedy genre is a more dominant female uh at the focus of the film that challenges the male or challenges the, the male character's masculinity in some way. Um, uh, and I just said, it usually results in the battle of the sexist storyline, which is probably the most 
used trope of this genre in like a modern sense. Mm-hmm. Um, many romantic comedies will use the battle of the sexes as a way to to put the two main characters in the story together. Um, as we talked about too with the Great Depression, um, another reason why that this kind of happened during that era was because of the Hayes Code or the Hayes Production Code, which was put into effect in 1934. And before we had what we now know as the MPAA, which determines ratings for movies, we had the Hayes Code. And it was a form of self-censorship that Hollywood put on itself as a way to prevent regulation from the government. And basically saying, instead of government coming in and regulating what films are being made, how they're being portrayed or whatever... Uh, we're going to regulate that. And so what happened was you began to cut down on like sexual references and more kind of uh, what what government would say is obscene things within the film. And with that kind of code coming in, kind of birthed the beginning of the screwball comedy genre. And uh, film film writer, film author uh, Andrew Saris, our crit- critic. Uh, once said that um, screwball comedy is a sex comedy without the sex. Mm -hmm. And essentially, filmmakers began using dialogue as a way to replace physical actions like sex or whatever was happening between the two characters um, as a way to disguise um, what is actually happening in the movie. And that, in turn, created this very fast-paced repartee between between characters which you'll see today for sure when we talk about this movie but yeah the the golden age of kind of screwball comedy starts off in like 1934 to essentially 1941 42 era uh and it kind of dies off because of world war ii it's the screwball comedy is kind of used as like a escapist piece of work for the 1930s during the depression as we talked about with class where class becomes a big uh a big part of the genre. This one's interesting too, because there's not really a battle of a classes. It's very specifically about a high class world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you do still kind of have that clash between the the two reporter characters. It's that it's, it's yeah, it's the reporter characters. It's also actually the person that, that Catherine Hepburn's character, Tracy is marrying. He is Mm -hmm. a, a, a man who pulled himself up by his bootstraps, basically as they would say, and was, Poor, from a poor family that became rich he's new and money. now he's trying to marry into a he's new money he's trying to marry into a rich family so yeah but that's the screwball comedy genre as thomas said too it's it also gets comparisons to the noir genre weirdly because they came up around the same time this one predates it a little bit um but they also have the they people say they have similar kind of character character archetypes and tropes within them so we we referenced uh, we referenced the Hayes code a good bit in our in our noir um, noir, month because that that was another genre that was very much about sex and violence and and had to work very hard to um keep the sex and the violence off screen and so they use dialogue a lot of those films as well to to represent what was happening off screen yeah um and then another thing too i want to talk about i guess right now to give us intro to one of the big uh that thomas can talk on one of the big kind of story tropes too within this genre is the comedy of remarriage Mm -hmm. and this film is today we're talking about the philadelphia story is probably the greatest film that is about the comedy of remarriage basically and so there might might be some some his girl friday stands out there that might uh 
Uh, that's fair. Might it's, argue it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's 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 a fight between two Cary Grant films. But I do love this one. This one. This one. Take this is uh, to go ahead and show my bias early on. This is one of my favorite movies and um, very much one of my fa- probably my favorite comedy. Um, yeah. And thank you, Brandon, for this pick coming after three months of <laughs> murder <laughs> and dark murder film and violence and darkness. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, I've seen this movie a couple times over the years, and it's one of my favorites as well. And just uh, a great joy to rewatch mm-hmm. this film. Still funny, still incredibly funny. But yeah, comedy remarriage. What is what is that about? Yeah, so you know, a lot of a lot of romantic comedies at the time. This again kind of sets uh, the screwball comedies apart. A lot of romantic comedies at the time were obviously about people meeting and falling in love. And so as another uh, kind of satire on that style of romantic comedy. A lot of the screwball comedies have these these comedy of remarriage, which is about two people who have been married, have gotten divorced, and then we watch them fall in love again. And it just it's it's yeah. like an added catalyst to this battle of the sexes that we're talking about before. It, instead of you know instead of that kind of like opposites attract storyline, it's like these people were attracted to each other and now they hate each other. But we're gonna watch yeah. them learn to be attracted to each other again, um, and it, it yeah, it's a very unique storyline that was born directly out of this this genre. It's kind of a subgenre of this this subgenre. And it was specifically going back to the Hayes Code. It was specifically born out of the fact that in the Hayes Code you could not see a married woman leave her husband. Basically, mm-hmm. is what it was. So. Th- filmmakers created this kind of this story as a way to break them up at the beginning of the movie have it to where the male or female characters can go and like date other people without having obligations uh to the story so it adds some sort of tension by the end of like if there's a love triangle who is the person going to choose this person or the other person the old flame or the new flame and and that's why i think this one does a I love His Girl Friday, but in terms of the comedy remarriage trope, I think you have two stronger equals Mm -hmm. in this movie compared to His Girl Friday. Like, I mean, and we'll we'll go into this a little bit later, but like you got Cary Grant and James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart competing for Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, I love that. I love that you brought up uh, love triangles because this is like a love parallelogram or probably even more than that. There's like five people. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, there's like there's so many different like. And Mike Connors, played by Jimmy Stewart, is in love with Catherine Hepburn, as is C.K. Dexter Haven, who's played by Cary Grant. And then you have Catherine Hepburn marrying, is is engaged to George Kittredge, but also Jimmy Stewart's uh, photographer for his newspaper is uh, in love with him. So it's so many different levels of who's in love with who. And then you just got Uncle Willie going around harassing everyone. And you got Uncle Willie. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem, that character right there in nowadays terms. Um, but yeah, a lot of courtship problems in the screwball comedy genre and we'll and we'll talk about too thomas mentioned the hoxian woman we're going to talk about that as the month goes on we're going to be covering a howard hawks film later in the month called ball of fire um but that's a big key of the of the dominant female and in this in this movie katherine hepburn is essentially playing i don't know if it's a hoxian woman uh to a t but she is the dominant female within the story anything else about the screwball comedy genre that you think people need to know before diving we, in we got a month we'll cover it so today's movie, as we said, is The Philadelphia Story. And The Philadelphia Story is available currently on HBO Max, uh, TCM, if you have the T- watch TCM app, which is a great 
great, uh, I think, service for for old films that uh, isn't as talked about as much. Um, also, I think it's uh, on DirecTV. If you have a, if you have DirecTV, I think it's subscription on there, um, and it's available to rent on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and wherever you rent your rent or buy your movies. So the Philadelphia story focuses on Tracy Lord, played by Catherine Hepburn, a Philadelphia socialite who is split from her husband, C.K. Dexter Haven, played by Cary Grant, uh, and they divorce due to his drinking problems and as they say her her hit as he would say her demanding nature um as tracy now prepares to wed the wealthy george kittredge who is from a lower class to high class new money as thomas said uh she crosses paths with both dexter again and a prying reporter mccully mike connor uh played by james stewart and is unclear about her feelings for all three men and basically they all gather together at her philadelphia estate for uh the week of the wedding and hilarity ensues um so uh, some people you'll need to know for this movie um the players of the film as we said the film has stars a trio of mega stars with Cary grant Catherine hepburn and james stewart uh the film was directed by george kukor who directed such films as the 1954 version of a star is born adam's rib and my fair lady so initial thoughts on this movie is this the greatest movie trio of all time? Yeah, yeah. It's it's up there for sure. Well, and the thing I, I love about this movie, and almost it's like every time I come back to it, and we'll, we'll, we can talk about this in, in awards later, The yeah. if I spend any amount of time away from this movie, I get so starstruck by the fact that these three people were together in this movie that I forget that Ruth Hussey is a fourth lead in this movie and really she carries is, her she weight. Is. Like, like once you're watching yes. it, you're like, wow, she's going tit for tat with every character in this movie. Um, but yeah, these, these three, I mean, it's, it's iconic. It's Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart all together in, in a movie. Yeah. It's, it's kind of insane. It's, it's, I mean, I mean, you know how many times in like just in film history or like every few years, it's the, Oh, we're pairing, not just, I mean, sometimes it's just like we're pairing these two people together but then it's like we're pairing these three people together and it just becomes somewhat disappointing. It's like that that meme that went around for like Avengers Endgame where it was like Avengers Endgame is the greatest team up movie of all time and then everybody was, yeah. was like posting other things. And then, but but this is very Avengers like in a weird way. It's like cuz also too, you, you got you got to think about it. You got to think about cuz like it's not just like an example for or it's, it's the Irishman with Scorsese, mm. where it's like it's Pesci, it's De Niro, it's Pacino. But the thing about those three guys is that they're at the tail end of their careers at that point. Like if you put all three of them like in a movie together, 1981, that's a crazy like trio of people. Mm. But they're they're at the tail end with 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 Hepburn, Grant, and Stewart. Hepburn will go into on this episode about kind of how she was in a very lull period of her career, but Grant and Stewart are rising stars. Stewart's just coming off an Oscar nomination for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, I think Cary Grant had just done Only Angels Have Wings with Howard Hawks. He'd done Gunga Den, uh, all coming out in 1939. So he was like, he was becoming a huge star at this point and was also the biggest romantic romantic lead probably at the or romantic comedy lead at least at this point in his career mm -hmm. um and hepburn was i think 31 had already gotten two oscar nominations and one oscar win uh as we'll talk about later but like yeah like these are people 
who looking back on it, it's like at a peak point in their careers. And rarely do you see a movie that comes out where they're at their peak and the movie succeeds in becoming a masterpiece, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Or a classic is a better way to say it. Um, in terms of like film pantheon. It rarely happens. I mean, I was talking to someone recently about this is no comparison to a Philadelphia story, but like Passengers with Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. Peak of their like box office and critical acclaim. You're hoping it's going to be a great film and then it just kind of becomes forgettable. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot when you when you will pair like big stars together. And this is one of those where like everything just works perfectly. So brief history of how it's got made. Okay. I might be giving a few spoilers here uh, regarding my thoughts for later on, but the story of this movie is Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. And you could argue it's one of the greatest comebacks of the golden age of Hollywood, maybe of all time. Mm-hmm. And and so this is what I'm going to tell you about. So at the age of 25, Hepburn starred in a film called A Bill of Divorcement, which starred famed actor John Barrymore and Billy Burke, who plays Glenda the Good Witch in Wizard of Oz, also um, married to Florence Ziegfeld, the big Broadway impresario of the 20s and 30s. Um, and it was she was like third built, and it was directed by George Cukor. And, and at the age of 26, she starred in her third film called Morning Glory, which earned her the first Academy Award win of her career. And that same year, she also starred as Joe March, Josephine March, in the 1933 adaptation of Little Women, uh, the role that was most recently played by Saoirse Ronan and Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation. This film was also directed by George Cukor. Um, Within three years, Catherine Hepburn's career was on a downturn. Before she reached 30 30 years old, audiences were beginning to grow cold of Hepburn. She starred in several box office failures and a couple of critical failures. In 1936, she vied for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, but producer David O. Selznick said that she had no sex appeal, and he had not believed that Rhett Butler would chase her for 12 years. Harsh. Bad guy, that that O. Selznick. (laughs) Very bad guy. Uh, In 1937, she starred in a film called Stage Door, where she starred starred alongside Ginger Rogers and a young Lucille Ball. A really good movie, by the way, uh, about a bunch of young actresses living in New York at this like one like apartment complex together. And it's a boarding home is what it is. The film would receive a best picture nomination and rave reviews from critics. But the, but the film was a box office disappointment. And many people attributed that to Hepburn's presence in the film. During this time, she, she began starring in several films with Cary Grant, like the famous screwball comedy now considered a classic bringing up baby. And even though today it's considered a classic, uh, of the screwball and romantic comedy genre and just the 1930s decade, it was a box office failure. Um, so after Bringing Up Baby's release in 1938, the independent theater owners of America released a list of actors and actresses compiled by a Manhattan theater owner uh, that were considered box office poison. And Catherine Hepburn's name appeared on that list is probably, probably towards the top. Um, after this, Hepburn asked her home studio, because people, uh, for those who don't know, actors and actresses and directors were under contract by a specific studio at this point. Uh, She was under contract at RKO Studios, and she asked if she could buy her contract out so she could control what movie she was in. 
they said that she could for a price of $75,000, which is about $1.3 million today. And she did that, becoming an independent actress not tied to any studio. She decided to star in the film Holiday, starring Cary Grant and directed by George Cukor. Also an adaptation of a Philip Berry play. I want to say that because Philip Berry also was the playwright for The Philadelphia Story. But that film was also a disappointment box (laughs) box office wise, even though it's considered now a classic of the genre. After being offered $10,000 to star in a film, the lowest she had ever received in her career, even uh, against her debut film, Hepburn decided to return to Broadway and to return to theater. Author Andrew Britton writes of Hepburn, no other star has emerged with greater rapidity or with more ecstatic acclaim. No other star ha- or no other star either has become so unpopular so quickly for so long a time. There's a lesson to be learned here, guys. It's that just because something critically or financially is a failure at the movie theater yeah. does not mean one day it won't be a classic. So this is true. If you love cats, hold on to that love because <laughs> one day everyone will recognize the genius of that film. Anyway, so she she goes back to New York to be in a play. Her last play she was in called, I believe, The Lake, was also a failure when she went to New York. So she was friends with a playwright by the name of Philip Berry, and he agreed to write a play specifically for her. That play would become The Philadelphia Story. Um, it was inspired by a real-life person, Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, a Philadelphia socialite known for her hijinks apparently did i think there was a rumor that the the one night she entered a debutante ball she was proposed to by four men who were there (laughs) like it's these it's like she's this like this kind of mythical character of this very rich family in philadelphia and philip barry was interested with her because he was a friend of hers also too he was hearing stories about how tabloid journalists were essentially blackmailing wealthy families to get money to cover up stories, which is a big prominent uh, plot line of this film. So he writes the play for Hepburn. Hepburn decides to fund the production of the play herself, refusing a salary and choosing to receive a percentage of the play's profits. Mm -hmm. The play would be a major success. It ran for 417 performances on Broadway, where it made over a million dollars in ticket sales. It would then go on to tour for 250 shows around the country, making another $750,000 in ticket sales. While the play was a success on Broadway, Hepburn's boyfriend at the time, or maybe ex-lover at the time, it's kind of confusing, uh, Howard Hughes, eccentric billionaire, who looks like Leonardo DiCaprio, if you've seen the AV, I'm kidding. Um, But Howard Hughes bought the film rights for the movie and gave them to her as a gift She then sold the rights to famed movie mogul Louis B. Mayer at MGM for the discount price of $250,000. In return, she would be allowed to star in the film and have veto power over her director, screenwriter, producer, and cast. She would choose George Cukor to direct the film, making it their fifth collaboration together. She would choose Joseph L. Mankiewicz, to produce the film, future writer-director of All About Eve, which we covered on the show before, and brother of Herman Mankiewicz, who is the co-writer of Citizen Kane and the uh, lead character of David Fincher's recent film, Mank. 
Um, she would choose the screenwriter Donald Ogden Stewart, who had written her last film, also an adaptation of Philip Berry play, Holiday. Uh, and Grant was chosen because of her previous collaborations, and Stewart was allegedly chosen by Hepburn after she saw his performance in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Did did she, does she have, does she have an official producer credit on this movie? No, she does. She does not. I mean, she basically just executive produced this film. Yeah, she did. She did. Uh, so this is this is her comeback vehicle. Like it's it's it is a everything about this movie is let's show you who Catherine Hepburn really yeah, let's is. Let's set up all the pins and let Catherine Hepburn knock them down. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And it's when you when you become more aware of that you and you watch that film you realize just how like make or break it is for her as an mm-hmm. actress. So yeah. So let's, let's dive into favorite scenes. Okay. So what are some of your favorite scenes? This movie, I've, there's a lot. Yeah. I was about to say, I feel like I'm going to be a little bit more uh, conservative with, with this than I am in normal yeah, yeah, episodes, because, just because I could list every single yeah. scene in this movie. Um, uh, I mean, for one thing, probably the, the entire second act when everyone's drunk, I could watch, <laughs> over and over again and i don't yeah. i don't normally like people playing drunk in movies especially old movies um but everyone's it's so much fun jimmy stewart is a plays a fantastic drunk in this movie yeah it's it's he it's he a top five drunk of all time oh, yeah. on movies well like, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. dive specifically into i love this whole, that whole sequence but specifically my favorite scene in the movie and and i'm sorry that i i it goes right into him with with katherine hepburn at the pool right afterwards which i also love but so I'm sorry we just talked about how this is Catherine Hepburn's movie, but I'm about to to say a scene that she's not in. Um, but the scene when Jimmy Stewart goes to Cary Grant's house to uh, like initially to fight him over like yeah, yeah, <laughs> over yeah. Tracy, and it, it, it's it's incredible all the way through from him rolling up in the driveway and being oh C.K. Dexter Haven, <laughs> and then they've got that extended gag where he keeps handing dex the champagne and dex will put it down and he'll see it and be like oh i i wonder if i can have some of your champagne <laughs> and it's the champagne that he brought <laughs> it's just the the rhythm ever the rhythm in this entire movie is incredible but but they're they're so good back and forth and that's a really good scene one of the things i love and i, I was going to save this for what worked but i'll just dive into it now one of the things i really love about this movie is is you know tracy's got an amazing arc um you just kind of realizing to to care about other people more and 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 worry a little bit less about what what she thinks about herself and and Mike's got this arc of like learning to let go of his pretenses and and look at people rather than where they're from and if you if you really yeah. look at the surface of this movie you would think that Dex doesn't have an arc and I think what's the really beautiful thing about this movie is all of Dex because Dex doesn't change in this movie but what it's everything about dex has changed in the last few years after his divorce he went off and like very obviously worked on himself got sober got became much more self-aware about himself he he kind of had the awakenings that everybody else has in this movie and and what it does instead of like giving us that arc is it doesn't reveal that to us right away and we kind of learn as the movie goes that like oh dex has become a much better person since his divorce and I think this mm-hmm. is the scene that like really sells it because he he's, he likes to play this like jaunty uh, rich playboy, yeah. and this is the scene when he's like you know everybody else is out partying and he's he's in bed like he's at home yeah, yeah, and, yeah he's in bed and yeah, yeah. Jimmy Stewart like shows up drunk with this 
uh champagne and dex is like no i don't, I don't drink anymore and um and that's this this is when you really find out because this is a scene when when he finds a way to to blackmail sydney kid back and and get the lords free of this the blackmail that they're in and and you know, he had, yeah, you you truly realize he's he's here for noble reasons, even though he he wants people to think he's just there to like mess with Tracy and, and cause some trouble. He still yeah, he still sees him as family is the thing. He still sees that entire family as his family yeah. in a way. Yeah, and so it's it's really interesting. I think how this movie handles that character because you you could very easily watch this movie and come away and being like he's a very static character. He he doesn't really change his mindset. And you could also I think come mm-hmm. away from this movie and be like spoilers um be like oh why does even though we just said it was this was a comedy of remarriage be like why does tracy end up back with this guy why does tracy have to change it's almost like like greece you could come away and be like why does tracy have to do all the changing and it's it's like dex isn't hasn't isn't shown changing on screen but it's it's slowly revealed to us that he has changed in the last few years what's this what's it my book yes sick here dexter haven you have unsuspected depth Oh, thanks, old chap. But have you read it? Well, I, I was trying to stop drinking. I read anything. And did you stop drink, drinking? Yes. Your book didn't do it, though. Are you still in love with her? Or perhaps you consider that a very personal question. Not at all. Liz thinks you are. Liz thinks you are. But of course, women like to romanticize about things. Yes, they do, don't they? Yes, they do, don't they? I don't know. I, I can't understand how you can have been married to her and still know so little about her. Can't you? No, I can't you. <laughs> I have the hiccups. I wonder if I might have another drink. Certainly. Thank you. And the thing with them, too, it's it's with this, specifically this comedy of remarriage, is that the first marriage represents their, like, the youthfulness and kind of blind innocence of of what they are and they learn they divorce because they can't accept the imperfections of or faults of the other character mm-hmm. and that's very prominent by the end is that grant and hepburn have matured enough where they can accept the faults of each other and themselves mm-hmm. and also realize they made a mistake in not doing it beforehand yeah and not accepting like because it's like, he was like he like grant's upset that she didn't accept the fact that he was he drank a lot Mm -hmm. but then he's changed that but i think he's still tempted and still tries to be a better person uh even when that happens and they've just realized that they are kind of they realize it's not going to be perfect but that's not the point of it Mm -hmm. i guess that makes sense yeah uh another favorite scene of mine is is a little bit earlier on when um when mike and um mike and liz first show up to the house and they're kind of that's, that's that was mine yeah and, and mike's like very much like making fun of of all the rich people stuff and then you you're, you're cutting to uh dex like immediately opening up and being like hey these guys are here undercover but they're they're reporters and and tracy deciding she's gonna mess with them which leads me to honestly i think the funniest the funniest lo- like joke delivery in this entire movie is when uh tracy's little sister is playing that song and it's just like lydia oh lydia oh have you seen lydia and liz is like what do you think what do you suppose this is (laughs) jimmy stewart goes like sounds like lydia (laughs) (laughs) there's a there's some great lines in that sequence because it's it's that and then um 
Catherine Hepburn walks in and she starts speaking French yeah. with Dinah, the, her sister. And she's like, oh, and, smallpox. And, and they're like, what? Smallpox. And Jimmy Stewart's react, I die. Because his reaction is so subtle, but it's a, oh, like his eyes get a little bit bigger and he grabs Liz and takes a step back. And it's such a quick, it's such a quick cut, but it's it's phenomenal. And then one of my other favorite lines is when, she sit, when Hepburn sits them both down and she's like, what did your father do? And, or does. And it's like, he's professor, uh, or like, uh, I don't know if it's in England or whatever. She goes, oh, I, she goes, oh, I love, I love England. Oliver Cromwell, the history is so, or, or so rich. Oliver Cromwell, uh, said, what's her name? Jack the Ripper. What does he teach you? <laughs> You're f- and it's a, pa- it's a pause. Like, what? Like asking where Jack the Ripper t- taught at. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I mean, your father. Yeah. It's just like a, it's just like a, such a play on, the 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 rhythm is so phenomenal. Hepburn has phenomenal pace uh, in her delivery. Mm-hmm. What a cunning little camera! I'm afraid I'm an awful nuisance with but it. You couldn't be. I hope you'll take loads. <laughs> Dear Papa and Mama, allowing any reporters in. That is, except for little Mister Grace, who does the social news. Can you imagine a grown-up man having to sink so low? Oh, it does seem kind of bad. <laughs> You're a kind of. Um, the writer, aren't you, Mr. Connor? Sort of. <laughs> a book? Yeah. Under what name do you publish? My own, Macaulay Connor. <laughs> What's the Macaulay for? Well, my father taught English history. I'm I'm Mike to my friends. Of whom you have many, I'm sure. <laughs> English history, it's always fascinated me. Cromwell, Robin Hood, Jack the Ripper. Where did he teach? Uh, I mean, your father. Oh, well, a little high school in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend. It sounds like dancing, doesn't it? You must have had a most happy childhood there. Yeah, it was terrific. I'm so glad. No, I didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry. Why? Uh, well, lack of wherewithal, I guess. <laughs> but that doesn't always cause unhappiness, does it? Not if you're the right kind of man. Another scene I love is when you finally get Tracy and Dexter to have their first fight in front of Mike. Mm-hmm. At the, when at the she's pool. like, don't go, yeah, at the pool. And she goes, don't go, Mr. Connors. And Grant, she goes, no, 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 don't go, Mr. Connors. You might want to want to hear this. Mm. And it's just them like, okay, let's do this. I'm putting my drink down. Let's go back and forth. Let's talk about what was wrong with our marriage. Mm-hmm. And Stuart just kind of slowly <laughs> backs away. <laughs> like, I'm going to get out of this, this, uh, this battle. Yeah. That's one of those, the, one of those iconic lines from this movie that is, has, not aged well but um is, is a yeah. great example of like how biting the wordplay was at this point when when uh dexter has that line that was like i i thought all writers drank to excess and beat their wives you know at one point i wanted to be a, a writer right yeah it's a very and she just looks at him like okay let's do this um another scene again because grant has funny even when he's not the main part of the scene Stuart's same but all of them kind of this way but grant specifically has just great like interjections mm-hmm. at ruth hussey may be the best in this movie but one of my favorite interjections with him is when it's the it's kind of the climax of the movie when everything's kind of coming out about what happened the night before and grant who knows exactly what happened uh he knows that nothing probably happened mm-hmm. between hepburn and stewart while um uh kitridge hepburn uh tracy's uh fiance believes she cheated on him and but but Grant's just sitting off the corner 
and occasionally just throws in like a he's line. He's got his little pipe. That's I just, he's, he's smoking yeah. his pipe that morning. Yeah. And my favorite, I can't remember what what, what what line says. My favorite line that Grant says is just like, damn right, un-American if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Just like, just keeps throwing in these just like, and they're just like, why are you here? Why are you talking? You're not involved in this argument at all. I think that's that's where this this movie really benefits from. You know, sometimes you can watch you watch a movie and, and you can tell in, in like a bad way it's been adapted from a play. But um yeah. but I think this is where being adapted from a play really helps this movie excel, especially in this time period where I feel like a lot of comedies were kind of played out in like, you know, a static two shot, maybe three shot, and it was just people kind of going back and forth. And this movie there's there's constantly you're, you're getting reaction you, you always have these huge scenes and you're just getting everybody's reactions and and grant yeah. and stewart and hepburn are all great at it at, at just reacting at what even if they're not in on whatever joke is getting thrown around right now they're they're still yeah. reacting to it and that's a lot of the especially with with stewart i think a lot of the really great comedy in this just comes like you were saying with the smallpox just comes out of his physical reactions to what's going on around him <laughs> Yeah, it's he and and even or even just like the uh the somewhere over the rainbow scene where mm. they've come from the pool, he's he's crooning somewhere over the rainbow. Don't stop, Mike. Keep crooning. But when he when he's walking and he just goes, uh oh, and <laughs> stops because he sees he, he sees he sees Kittridge and Dexter looking at them as he's like, Oh, this doesn't look good. <laughs> He's like I'm carrying I'm carrying one man's fiance and one man's ex-wife and we're in bathrobes yeah. and I'm singing somewhere over the rainbow. And Hepburn follows it up with that incredible delivery when she's like, "Hello, Dex. Hello, George. <laughs> Hello, Mike." <laughs> She's got in, in the I, I love that whole like I I, I love that that sequence and and right before before they go to the pool, they've got that scene where they're just they're both drunk and dancing, and she's got this incredible moment where I forget he says he pays her some sort of compliment, and she just does this like ah, it's so good. I, every time I watch this movie, I did it the, this past time I was rewatch. I like stop and rewind that and just watch her do that like three times. It's the, the, I don't know what she's doing with it, but it is hilarious. Somewhere over the rainbow way up. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby Somewhere And the dreams that I dare to do Uh Don't stop, Mikey. Keep crooning. Someday over the rainbow, way up high. What is this, Connor? Now, easy, old man. He's not hurt. No, no. Not wounded, sir, but dead. Seems the minute she hit the water, the wine hit her. Now, look here, Connor. A likely story, Connor. What'd you say? I said a likely story. Now, listen, if you You'll think... you be that... down directly? Yes, if you want. I want. Hello, Dexter. Hello, George. Hello, Mike. <laughs> I mean, in her, like I said, the, even the line, I don't know how it ages well, but it's it's the when she when when she finds out that uh, 
Mike did not have sex with her, basically. Is what, <laughs> it's not said this way. But like, but she goes, what, was there something wrong with yeah, me? We just like, spent the last was 10 I minutes. Not a, was I not attractive She enough? spent the last 10 minutes being like so worried that, that she had sex with Mike the night before. And then when he comes out, he's like, oh, I can set the record straight. We didn't have sex last night. And she's like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> That 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 scene is that's a great example. If if someone needs, if you need to like teach someone about the Hayes Code, you should just sit yeah. down and watch that. It's a very long scene. It's, it's basically the whole third act kind of plays out in that scene, yeah. uh, and it's just yeah. all it's the entire family talking about whether or not Tracy and Mike got drunk and had sex the night before without saying that they had sex the night before. That was one I I I first saw this movie on, on TCM, and we probably talked. I think we talked about this on the hundredth episode um i was in like middle school the first time i saw it and i and i loved jimmy stewart at that point i loved Cary grant i loved Catherine hepburn and i i was like you know like you said it's like the, seeing the avengers for the first time it's like oh my god all these people together at once and um this has been one of those movies i come back to maybe almost yearly maybe every two years and it was incredible like getting older and 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 coming back to this movie and be like oh oh i didn't know the entire third act of this movie was about whether or not they like i knew I knew it was about whether she had like cheated on George, but I didn't realize they were really talking about whether she had cheated on George or not. On the very eve of your wedding, an affair with another man. I told you I agreed, George, and I tell you again, good riddance to me. Tracy, your attitude is a little difficult to understand. Yes, I can see that it would be. Not necessarily. You keep out of this. You forget I am out of it. Ketridge. It may interest you to know that this so-called affair consists of exactly two kisses and a rather late swim. Thanks, Mike, but there's no All of which I thoroughly enjoyed and the memory of which I wouldn't part with for anything. It's no use, Mike. After which I deposited Tracy on her bed in her room and promptly returned down here to you two, which doubtless you'll remember. Doubtless, without a doubt. You mean to say that was all there was to it? I do. Why was I so unattractive, so distant, so forbidding, or something well, this that this is you... fine talk, too. I'm asking a question. You were extremely attractive, and as for distant and forbidding, on the contrary, but you also were a little the worse or better for wine, and there are rules about that. One of my favorite lines I just want to say is when she goes, Who all was here last night? Well, me, him, him. Good golly, why didn't you sell tickets? <laughs> like, she's... <laughs> I also that's Sarah another thing is was there. I also usually hate people playing hungover in movies, but she's she's fantastic in this. She that, does it great. That moment she when she great. like she like walks out and she doesn't because she like so many people play hungover. They're like, oh, don't talk so loud. I'm so hungover. And she and Tracy doesn't want people to know that she's hungover because she refuses to admit that she gets drunk. So she's got that moment where she like steps out into the sun and then steps back. And then they all know she's hungover and they're like, oh, hello. And she's trying to act like she's fine. Isn't everyone fine? It's a fine morning. Tracy. Hello. Um, isn't it a fine day, though? Is everybody fine? That's fine. Hi, I'm hearty. Well, how do you feel otherwise? Well, I don't know what's the matter with me. I I must have had too much sun yesterday. My eyes don't open properly. Really? Oh, please go home, De Dext. Not until we've got those eyes open. Uncle Willie, good morning. That remains to be seen. Aren't you here early, Uncle Willie? It's nearly half past twelve. 
Well, it can't be. Where's Mother? She's talking with the orchestra. Father with the minister. And Mr. Connor, he hasn't come down yet. So, moving on to onset life. The film was in production from July 5th, 1940 to August 14th, 1940. I, I've heard six weeks, eight weeks of how long it took. Uh, from that account, it looks like about eight weeks. Um, the, it came, it came in five days under schedule. Hmm. So five days early. And the budget was $914,000. Uh, Stewart had been extremely nervous about the scene in which Connor recites poetry to Tracy and believed he would perform badly. Noel Coward was visiting the set that day. Famed playwright and <laughs> oh, no, author. No Coward's and just casually on set. Was visiting. And he, he was friends with George Cukor. Uh, uh, to say and Cukor asked him can you go say something encouraging to Jimmy Stewart and Coward offhandedly said did I mention I think you're a fantastic actor and that just helped Stewart do the scene uh Stewart was also quite uncomfortable with some of the dialogue of the film especially in the swimming pool scene mm. uh Stewart apparently spontaneously thought of hiccuping in the drunk scene <laughs> without telling Cary Grant so when he began hiccuping Grant turned to Stewart saying excuse or excuse me and i think he was trying grant was trying not to laugh if you go back and watch that well, scene and, and stewart stewart has this moment where he goes i've, I've got the i've got the hiccups <laughs> yeah and allegedly the scene only took one take so that's 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 incredible that's my favorite scene in the movie it was so good <laughs> uh and last thing on onset life uh hepburn said it was integral for her comeback for Cary grant to push her down in the opening scene of the film she said before filming, "I don't want to make a, I don't want to make a grand entrance in this picture. Moviegoers think I'm too la di da or something. A lot of people want to see me fall fall flat on my face. Uh, the idea, her idea, was that if the audience laughed at her enough, they would begin to sympathize with her and not just the character, but Catherine Hepburn herself. Wow." That's yeah. Th this is this is truly like you said. This is a story of Catherine Hepburn. This is a story of incredible business sense when it comes to the entertainment industry. Yep. Just how how yeah how intelligent she was to like yo I'm I gotta do something or I'm not gonna have a career. And let me just put all, all my chips into this one on this one hand mm -hmm. the Philadelphia story. So aftermath. The film opened in New York City at Radio City Music Hall on December 26th, 1940, day after Christmas, before receiving a nationwide release on January 17th, 1941. So it had like like two months in post, really? Yeah, That's basically. Uh, well, so one, two, three, 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 four months. I mean, I know post. there's not a lot of cuts in this movie, but still, that's crazy to think about. How fast they moved back then at this mm -hmm. point of just like you got four, you got four months to do everything. Um, it was held for it was held from general audiences outside of New York City because the play was still touring around the country and they didn't want to compete with that huh. uh, with the with the play so they didn't want to lose money that way. Imagine if Disney Plus had held back Hamilton until they had made sure that everyone in America had a chance to see it live. Seen, yeah, exactly. I know it's crazy, right? They would never do that. Uh, the film set a record at Radio City Music Hall, running six straight weeks, breaking the previous record. Funny enough, set by Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, hey. um, it would make it would reportedly make over six hundred thousand dollars at that location alone. Um, it would eventually gross three point three million worldwide, becoming the fifth highest grossing film 
of the year. I said, you know, we've 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 talked on this podcast before about the kind of the platform release, as it's called, you know, starting in, in select cities yeah. and building from there. And uh, hey, it works. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reviews were glowing. It's funny. One of the reviews, I think, I can't remember which one it was. It might have been the New York Times where they talked about how, like, it's just so great to see a movie of this uh, movie of this quality because all we've been seeing are like these big budget epic films. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like, yeah, see, this is what, this is what, this is a side argument that I have with people. Cause for some reason, people just think that what we're going through now with these big budget, either superhero films or like remakes or IP or whatever, everyone thinks that this is just new. Yeah. Like that this has never happened before. If you go look at every decade in film, probably. Maybe excluding the seventies, I feel, um, because the new well, then, Hollywood movement. Then Spielberg put it into that, <laughs> and then Spielberg, Spielberg and Lucas put it into that. But if you look at, so yeah, I guess every decade. If you look at every decade of film, there is always that argument of Hollywood isn't making original ideas. Yeah. Hollywood isn't making smaller stories. They're just making the big budget movies that'll make Go money. back That's to the like the late fifties when like seventy five percent of movies coming out were westerns and everything yeah. on television was a western. Western, yeah. It's just so it's like it's not it's not a new argument. Um. Anyway, but one of the critics, Variety, and Variety said, "For Miss Hepburn, this is something of a screen comeback. Whether it means she has reestablished herself in pictures is something that can't be said from this viewing, for she doesn't play in the Philadelphia Story. She is the Philadelphia Story." Hmm. The film would go on to receive six Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Hepburn, Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart, Best Supporting Actress for Ruth Hussey, and Best Adapted Screen or Best Screenplay for Donald Ogden Stewart. Both Stewarts, Donald Ogden Stewart and Jimmy Stewart, would win the Oscar in their respective categories. When Donald Ogden Stewart accepted his Oscar, he jokingly said, I have no one to thank but myself. Because apparently everyone, he said everyone that was going up that night was saying, I didn't expect to win. I don't know who to thank. Or I have to thank so many people. And he was just like, I'm just going to thank myself. (laughs) After Jimmy Stewart won the Oscar for his performance, he believed that he didn't deserve the Oscar. And that he he believed that that the Academy was paying him back for not giving him the award the year previously for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Stewart believed that his real life best friend, Henry Fonda, should have won the should have won the Oscar for his role as Tom Joad in the Grapes of Wrath, and he even admitted to voting for him at the Oscars. Uh, Stewart fully believed he would not win because of Fonda, that he planned not to show up to the Oscars until he got a phone call advising him to get a dinner jacket and to show up. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those examples that's always kind of given as like a "Hey, sorry, we missed you last time." Yeah, Oscar. And yeah. I, I don't like that narrative because I think that I think that perpetuates this idea that you can't win an Oscar on a comedy. Um, Jimmy Stewart is an incredible dramatic actor. But the thing is, he even though he had done comedies before this, he was usually the straight man. Yeah. Um, and this one just lets him let loose. Like we've said, he's he's really the the most comedic of the male characters in this movie. And um and I, I like to think that that can still be recognized. You know, it's been a long time since we've had like a straight up comedy win in the Oscars. And the ones that have happened are, are very iconic at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, the, some of the, especially, you know, in the 80s, you had um, Kevin Klein, uh, one for A Fish Called Wanda, which was really rare. rare. Jessica Lange won for um, 
Tootsie. For Tootsie, which was very rare. But, uh, you know, I, it, it gives me hope sometimes <laughs> when that does happen. So I like to think... I like to think everyone was was still very impressed with Jimmy Stewart's comedic performance in this movie. Well, looking back on it, do you think he should have won over Fonda? I mean, here's the thing. Looking back on it, I've seen Jimmy Stewart do Mr. Smith several times as I have seen Henry Fonda do that okay. character several times. I don't think Jimmy Stewart ever had a Macaulay Connor again in his career. That's a fair point. Which I, I think is very rare. I think is worth recognizing. That's a that's a good argument uh, against that, by the way, uh, because because Fonda would play like a Tom Joad character mm-hmm. many times, even though the film is probably I don't I don't know I don't know what he consider the more classic film, Grapes of Wrath or Philadelphia Story, and maybe depend on who you're talking to. I guess Tom Joad is a more recognizable figure mm-hmm. uh, in American culture because of the the book and the movie um but yeah fonda played i mean he played it he he played a dramatic role many times in his career if, if it be uh you know it's different performance with a uh, young mr lincoln or my drawing clementine uh and movies of that caliber but yeah I, I i'm happy i'm I'm just happy stewart has an oscar i think he was nominated five total times and this is only competitive win i think's what it was i think he was nominated for mr smith or mr smith this um it's Wonderful Life, Harvey, and Anatomy of a Murder. And this is the mm. one he won for. Um, so the film would be the final collaboration between Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn after starring in four films together during their career. Uh, Hepburn would continue working with George Cukor, starring in eight movies, eight films, and two TV movies. After the film was released, it received four radio adaptations in the 1940s, two of which starred hepburn grant and stewart oh i didn't know there were two i knew there was one it's on the um it's on the criterion version that i have yeah. but um 1942 yeah, and ni- two. 1942 and 1947 so seven mm. years after the movie they came back and did it uh the film was later adapted into 1956 musical high society starring bing crosby frank sinatra and grace kelly in her final movie role uh thomas what are your thoughts on high society I like High Society. It's fun. It's nowhere near as good as this movie. Um, uh, it's it's a fun cast and the, the music's fun. I um, I wrote a term paper on High Society one time because I really wanted to write it on the Philadelphia story, but I had to include a musical. Uh, I, I, I had to write a term paper for a genre studies class that incorporated genre studies ideas of screwball comedy, musical, and, and a Western. And uh, I was like, I could do Philadelphia Story because it has some of those Western ideas of like these two men who one is like a rogue and one's one's more uh, kind of lawful. And um, and then I was like, but I still need a musical. And I was like, oh, yeah, High Society exists. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Got it. Uh, Yeah, I've actually never seen High Society surprisingly it's fun it's Uh i i I think honestly the best part of high society is that louis armstrong is like one of the supporting characters and performs a lot of the music in it and uh the music's the music's a lot of fun there's a uh i've mentioned him before of late on this on this on the show uh patrick willems who's a video essayist did a thing of him like uh doing um tcm wine club uh, and and High Society is one of, the, one of the movies. He goes, well, it's a remake of this movie, Philadelphia Story, which I've never seen, so let me watch that. So he loves Philadelphia Story, then watches High Society, he's like, yeah, 
it's okay. Yeah, uh, it's fine. He's like, the best part is that Louis Armstrong starts to move with the song and then goes, end of song, beginning of story. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, I want every movie to start this way. If you can just have Louis Armstrong sing a song that tells you the whole movie in the opening song and then goes, end of song, beginning of story, and the movie starts. But yeah. So the Philadelphia story has continued to receive great acclaim over the past 80 years. Came out 80, 81 years ago, technically, or 80 years ago nationwide, technically. Uh, it was in the 44th greatest American film by the American Film Institute in 2008, or 2007, actually, along with being named the 15th greatest comedy and 5th greatest romantic comedy. In 1995, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation for the National Film Registry, and it still holds 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with over 60 reviews, so a good bit of reviews for an older film. There's uh, a if you if there. you're interested in in this sort of thing whatsoever, there's a very short documentary on the Criterion version about the restoration and preservation of this film because it was the the negative was lost in one of the many um, oh, wow. silver nitrate fires. Um, yeah, and you know the film used to negatives used to be printed on this film that was explosive basically um and and so when they did decide to go like go back and and preserve this film they were pretty shocked to realize that the negatives were gone completely and um did did a decent job preserving it for the 1995 uh version but then when criterion went back to release it they weren't super happy with it so they ended up going back and like piecing together a ton of different reels to get their version of it yeah that's crazy yeah i think uh, yeah i think came out in criterion two three years ago two years Mm -hmm. ago i think uh so thomas what worked about this movie the team up we've said it before i'll say it again <laughs> this is the avengers of, of romantic comedy um yeah it's just three incredible performers I, i'm sorry ruth Hussey, to put you out there here for a second but you know three of kind of the most iconic performers of this period yeah uh you know whether they knew it or not at the time yeah uh, just performing to the best of their abilities and the everyone who is supporting in this movie is fantastic and it's just one of those we talk, I, I like to talk when we're talking about comedies a lot about the, the rhythm of comedy but it, yeah. it has this flow through it that never stops it's just constant yeah. back and forth back and forth back and forth and everyone is just nailing every single joke they give a lot of the scenes in this movie will like go out on a punchline and that can feel cheesy if, if the rhythm isn't nailed right that can feel almost like a like sitcom like pause for laughs cut to the next scene moment but it's always yeah the way they're delivered and you like you said liz usually kind of has those gets those moments and handles them perfectly but uh, it always feels like a great it closes out a scene and you're like boom we're done on to the next one this is amazing yeah ruth hussey i'm gonna say this this is a very old reference for people out there but uh ruth hussey is like the zippo marks of this group uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of the marks brothers it's like it, cause, cause Zippo Marks was a guy who like was kind of there in the group of like of of Groucho Harpo and Chico. Uh, very old references to some of our <laughs> audiences. But Zippo is like the fourth Marx brother who is the least flashy of the three. But mm-hmm. he still had great comedic timing, and usually he was used for these like little quick lines at the end of a scene or whatever. And Ruth Hussey, I think, kind of has that ability. Uh, where I bet she's she's funnier I think than Zippo. Uh, but it's that she can she does she isn't as flashy as the other three. She's not as like charismatic I guess in terms of star power, but she holds her own. Uh, 
against those three. We'll talk about her Some, later. Something I think. I've really grown to love the more I come back to this movie is is the moments that we get between her and, and Dexter, because I was talking about you know Dexter's arc earlier. Dexter and Liz are both very self aware people, and they're also both really good at reading other people. Yeah, and and so much of this movie is about Mike and Tracy like learning to discover themselves and learning to learning mike i mean mike's terrible at like reading other people so there there's a couple little moments back and forth but especially when dexter brings there's the 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 little scene when dexter brings liz home after she's helped him type up their blackmail letter that they have a kind of back and forth and and you're just like wow these two have everything figured out and they're just letting they both they're in love with you know dex is in love with tracy and and Liz is in love with Mike and they're just letting those two drunk idiots go figure their stuff out and they're just going to be there for them when they when they get when they it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. They are very they don't have a lot of scenes here but yeah they're very much kind of the one and the same. I love the line when when she's talking about Mike and and Dex says like Liz what what would you do if Mike was in love with someone else and Liz said well I'd probably scratch her eyes out unless I knew that she was getting married in the morning. <laughs> You're like Liz knows everything that's happening right now, and she's just wants to sit back and watch it. We'll see what else. Works. I mean, yeah, dialogue, script, acting, pretty much so much in terms of like the cast and everything is just perfect. Okay, did anything not work? Huh. Um. You know, I hate to. I, I just talked about how great the cast is. Uh, I think Kittredge could could give a little bit more. In this yeah, movie. he, he and, he's and, kind of know, for, the, he's kind of forgettable. It's a tough character. It's maybe not necessarily the performance as much as the character, but um, and and I get that the joke is that he's got to stick up his ass, but uh. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's put by John Howard. Yeah, he's kind of. It's funny when you, when you see posters of like all three of them with Catherine Hepburn as like they're the three suitors. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I forget he's in the movie. Yeah, like, no, Liz should be th- on the poster. Like, yeah, you take George would, off the poster and put Liz yeah. up there. You would think that the guy she's gonna marry is like gonna be like i mean i'm not saying as equal as jimmy stewart and Cary grant but like you think he'd be a little bit like higher up in in mm-hmm. the in the art in, in the fight or whatever he's like he's kind of higher there. on the call sheet for sure yeah higher on the call sheet okay here's my <laughs> one thing here's my one thing one thing i'm not sure how i feel about this i guess it's kind of in retrospect of like i don't know how they deal with class that much in this movie like the class aspect is very pro like rich people if that makes sense mm-hmm. like the one guy who was like poor who became rich is i'm not saying the villain of the movie but kit rich is kind of like the guy who doesn't have it figured out and it's kind of like the antagonist of everyone in the film but everyone else who's like basically been rich or from money is kind of like we're just kind of good people um I don't know. It's it's more just me putting that on, but like it's I guess the class thing is kind of forgotten as the movie progresses. Like mm. Mike Mike pretty much within like a few scenes of meeting Tracy Lords uh or Tracy Lord uh becomes uh infatuated with her like very mm-hmm. quickly and his all of his class stuff goes out the window. So that's the yeah. one thing they could have probably done more with is like the class difference uh and 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 may make fun of the rich more. I don't know. Um, yeah, I I think the only thing that I bump on when I when I rewatch this movie is her relationship with her dad. I think is wrapped yeah. up a little bit too neatly in the bow, and and that's yeah. that's you know that I think that's a, a 
remnant of the time where yeah you know she tracy should really be able to be like hey you still suck like i realized that i was not a nice person but you still kind of suck and instead she's like oh i'm so sorry i've I've been i've been so cold and he's like don't worry i love you and it's just like now nah, that guy still is like yeah. a philanderer and kind of an asshole um yeah but that you know that's just the kind of thing where they, they they gave they give tracy a lot of uh a lot of power and a lot of freedom in this movie that that is kind of surprising for a film of its time but maybe they were yeah. like yeah that's that's too far we can't yeah. we can't have her tell her dad to to piss off and and go back to his mistress in new york at the end of this movie yeah there was one i think it was the av club with their like when romance meets comedy thing she talked about how the the women in the movie treat tracy a lot better than the men in the movie and I remember mm. talking about the dad as that the, like all the men are kind of judgmental uh, to Tracy in some way when the women are more understanding and kind of see where, cause the whole thing is that what Tracy's thing is that she, she feels she has to be, I guess, put on a pedestal in a weird way. Like, mm. That's what kind of talks about. She, ha- she has to be seen as a goddess or whatever. Uh, and I think that's because I don't know if that's because of her father or if that's because of, of, of Dexter, the first marriage with Dexter, but everyone's putting her on a pedestal and no one's really seeing her for what she is as a complex and sometimes flawed human being. She's not a perfect goddess, as I think Mike might say at one point. Mm-hmm. And the father, yeah, so it's, it's, so all the women are very much, they, they understand Tracy a whole lot more than the men. And I think the father is the prime example of someone who doesn't really get his daughter and kind of thinks she has to be perfect. Yeah. In reality, he's got, the, he's got that line of dialogue where he's like, no one understands that a man's philandering is, has nothing to do with his wife and everything to do with the way his daughter treats him. And, and Tracy like fires back at him. Like they don't let him get away with that completely. Like Tracy yeah. does fire back at him in that scene. But I do think by in the end, by having Tracy kind of say like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Yeah, it lets him get away with with that, which is complete yeah. BS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, "Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm just happy. I'm happy you're doing this." I'm like, "Oh, yeah." It's it 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 does. When talking about now, and when you say that, it does kind of like doesn't make sense that we have to tie up that one last thing mm-hmm. before she gets married uh, to to Dexter. Yeah, honestly, just give her a line where she's like, "I forgive you." Like you, you are an asshole, but I'm learning to be more forgiving. I forgive you. Yeah, like just yeah. give her that moment instead of just being like, I'm sorry about myself. And he's like, Oh, it's all yeah. forgiven. Like, no dude, yeah, you, yeah. you're not in any place to be forgiving anybody. right now. She didn't think he was coming to her wedding. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, she was like, Oh, he's not going to come. Cause he's like, and, and then now, cause the whole thing is that they're, they're blackmailing the family because of him. And they're mm-hmm. trying to sit, they're trying to save his ass basically. By saying, hey, we're going to give him this story so it didn't come out that you've been, like, a terrible person this entire time. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. The father. Forget him. But Willie. I don't know. Uncle Willie's still a problem. Uncle Willie's problem actor today. Uh, anyway. Um, the alternate universe cast. Here are some people that were up for... Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the Broadway cast of this show. Because yeah. Broadway cast is actually interesting. Um, original Broadway cast included. As C.K. Dexter Haven... Joseph Cotton. Ooh, that'd be fun. I like that. Uh, for some of the, the 1950s noir fans, Van Heflin was Mike Connors. I don't know if I... Van Heflin's a interesting actor of the, of the time. Um, and then Ann Baxter of All About Eve was Dinah Lord, the, the young daughter. Uh-huh. 
Cary Grant was given the choice to play either role, and he chose C.K. Dexter Haven was was mm-hmm. one thing. Uh, the big one. When Hepburn brought the film to MGM, she initially wanted Clark Gable as Dexter and Spencer Tracy as Mike Connors, Macaulay Connors. Oh, wow. Gable was busy, but some believed he was not cast because George Cukor had recently been fired from <laughs> Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> allegedly because of disagreements with gable some say it yeah. was though selznick the producer but some say it was because of gable and that was the reason why it didn't happen uh spencer tracy turned it down because he wanted to star in dr jekyll and mr hyde huh. is what it was which came out in 1941 but and trey and apparently hepburn didn't really know either of them at that point I was and about I to say they hadn't begun their affair at that they point. They hadn't begun their affair yet. And I think I think they I think the next movie she made was in 1942 called Woman of the Year. And I think that was with Tracy, is what it was. Yeah. Spencer Tracy. Okay. Uh film facts. Catherine Hepburn did her own dive into the swimming pool. There were no doubles, apparently. That was a big Yeah, thing. I was because it's a very long take of her yeah. like walking around the pool and doing it. I was like, that's gotta be her. I noticed that this last time I watched it. Yeah. Um Catherine Hepburn either received $150,000 for the movie or because I've heard conflicting reports or she deferred her salary for 45% of the profits. The pro- the film pro- the film was uh, was profitable by 1.2 million. So hey, about ha- <laughs> $550,000 give or take that she friendly, must possibly make. Friendly reminder to our listeners out there, uh if you ever get a chance to get film profits in the modern day film market do not take it <laughs> period but i'm very glad that that worked out for for katherine hepburn in the past uh give me a call night. we'll talk points we'll talk deal <laughs> points but don't take a don't take percentage of the profit yeah uh carrie grant's only stipulation to do the film was to receive top billing which the studio agreed to because of Hepburn's box office poison label. Hmm. So they're kind of like coat. It's like, if you look at the, the, the movie, it's Grant Hepburn, then Stewart. Hmm. Uh, Grant also received $137,000 for his role, which is about 2.5 million today, which he then donated all to the British war relief fund. Wow. During world war two. Okay. Great, England, I think England was, England was already fighting at that point. So story questions. Does Dexter and Tracy's marriage last? I think so. I think they okay. are now both self-aware enough. I think they fight. I think they definitely yeah. I think they're one of those couples that has a lot of very healthy fights. Um, <laughs> but I think they've both become like self-aware enough and, and empathetic enough at this point to to make it work. Do you think he falls off the wagon at some point after they uh, after they get married? I like to think not. I like to think okay. that, that maybe it's just how chill he is in that scene when when Jimmy Stewart is so drunk around him. But it feels yeah. like he's very confident in his sobriety. He's yeah yeah yeah. He's not drink. Okay. Uh, do Mike and Liz get married? Absolutely. Okay. It's not right away. It's after Mike won't get Mike won't marry Liz until he writes his his until he finishes his his great novel. But um, she's gonna make it happen and uh she's gonna get him there and and then they'll get married right after and it's gonna be it's, gonna, it's not gonna be a hit it'll be a critical success but it's not gonna sell there's okay that's a side thing they do in this movie that i think's that pops up a lot in later movies of just like the uh 
the right the the undiscovered writer if that makes sense like Stuart that's kind mm-hmm. of the side thing Stuart does is and that's kind of his character is that like why he thinks less of these people is like he's a guy who enjoys art and poetry and and literature and and all these the the cultures of the world and these people he sees just fake and so that's mm-hmm. kind of the surprising part is that when he sees Hepburn reading his book at the library uh and she like she basically says like his his writing is like poetry. He's like, well, it's it should be or whatever. Um, because they're all like short. It's like it's like short story collection of things what he did. Yeah, is his first mm-hmm. book. So yeah, he's just trying. He's trying to get. He's ba- and so that's the, his character is that he's being stuck writing these like crappy stories for like essentially spy, spy magazine, uh, tabloid, and he wants to be a true author, which feels well, like that's. that's- he later on he discovers that Dexter also owns his book. He's there, they're like yeah. sitting in, in his library, and he's like, "Oh, you have my book." Yeah, he's he's like, "I needed to read to try to stop the drinking." Yeah, uh, did it help? Well, not that one, but yeah. I did stop. <laughs> um, awards: the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. Who do you have? Uh, I probably go with Dinah. So do I. Yeah, I have Dinah. I have Virginia okay. Wheel, Virginia Wielder, or we- uh, Weedler, Virginia Weedler. I think she's great. It's, great. it's a great role. We talked about her as the ballet when she comes out in like uh uh in the ballet on point. But the also I love the scene when she's recounting to Hepburn of like I had this weird dream <laughs> last night. Yeah, and she- <laughs> well, she's also got that great line at some point when they're like uh. When they grab her to oh to go to the party and they like pull and she's like come on yeah. her mom's like come on Dinah you ride with me and she's like I'm being taken away which must mean something interesting's happening. <laughs> you know I was I, I was I didn't want to jump on your film facts because I thought it was gonna pop up there but um you know what what modern actress had her star making turn as Dinah in a revival on Broadway? Uh no I don't. She she went f- from that to a uh, to a movie that you love and I do not. <laughs> <laughs> now i'm just trying to think of what movies i love that you hate we covered it covered it on the podcast it was uh anna kendrick played played dinah in a oh did she revival, really in a revival i was, of Philadelphia I was thinking i was thinking camp but i was like he wouldn't bring up camp right now would he yeah yep wow i could see it, might, think, it yep. might actually been it might have been high society but um okay but yeah I feel she, like it's, she was it's on probably Broadway high as dinah i feel like it's probably high society that would make more sense as a musical with her because she was she did a lot of uh, music. I mean, she's gonna sing Lydia either way. Lydia, oh Lydia. <laughs> probably, probably Lydia. I just love the yeah. way he does that because because <laughs> Liz is like asking like what's going on here, and he's just like, yeah, sounds like Lydia. Yeah. Uh, well, Virginia uh, Weedler, Beatrice State Award winner for Dinah, Dinah Lord. You know, I did have the funniest dream about you last night. Did you? Do you like my dress, Donna? Yes, ever so much. Feels awfully heavy. It was all certainly pretty rooty tooty. What was? My dream. Oh, Donna. I dreamed I got up and went over to the window. And guess what I dreamed I saw coming over out of the woods? I haven't the faintest idea. A skunk. Well, sort of. It was Mr. Connor. Mr. Connor? Yes, with his both arms full of something. And guess what it turned out to be? What? You and some clothes. Wasn't it funny? It was sort of like as if you were coming from the pool. The pool? 
from going crazy. I'm standing here solidly on my own two hands and going crazy. Then what? And after a while, I opened my door crack, and there he was in the hall, still coming along with you, puffing like a steam engine. His wind can't be very good. Then what? And you were sort of crooning. I never crooned in my life. I'm only saying what it sounded like. And then he... Guess what? I couldn't possibly... Then he just sailed right into your room with you. And that scared me, so I got up and went to your door and peeked in to make sure you were all right. And guess what? What? You were. He was gone by then. Okay, Annie Potts X Factor Award. Supporting actor, actress is the most memorable. Who do you have? I think I think everyone knows this one already. I think we've telegraphed enough that uh, that we were going to give it to Ruth Hussey for this yeah, one. Yeah, deserves it. Um, I mean, it's the only Oscar nomination she ever had in her career was for this role. Uh, support. Let me see who beat her out. The Oscars were crazy that year. It was like Rebecca was nominated. Uh, Hitchcock's first American film. Great Dictator, Grapes of Wrath, Foreign Correspondent, also a Hitchcock movie. Best Supporting Actress, okay, Jane Darwell for Grapes of Wrath as Ma Jode. Mm. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. She's winning here. She might not she's have won win, the Oscars. She's, she's winning she's... here. She deserves all the credit in the world. She has great line deliveries. I think at the, she has a... She has a... I mean, it's a great moment between her and Tracy at the end when, like, Tracy, like, turns down Mike because, like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to take a man that's uh that another woman's in love with or whatever um oh no my favorite line that she that she kind of says is i think tracy apologizes to her at one point and uh ruth goes uh sometimes we all get a little crazy or we all get a little crazy sometimes and if we don't we should mm-hmm. and that kind of in the climax of all er, climax scene of everyone together just just perfect just she 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 we're talking about how her and grant are very similar like they both have those interjections where you can just throw into the scene and it's just a great one-liner they have. Well, home after a hard day's blackmailing. When are you going to telephone Kid? Time to get him here for the wedding. Why? Oh, sort of wedding present. If it works. If it works. I can still tear it up. No. Mike's only chance to ever become a really fine writer is to get fired. You're a good number, Liz. Oh, I just photograph well. I'm certainly out of focus now. Why don't you take a swim? A swim? Sure. Tracy and I always took a swim after a party. Did you? Mm-hmm. Bet it was fun. I'll have to try it with Mike sometime. Liz, why don't you marry him? You really want to know? Mm-hmm. He's still got a lot to learn. I don't want to get in his way for a while. Okay? Okay. Uh, It's risky, though, Liz. Suppose another girl came along in the meantime. I'd scratch your eyes out, I guess. That is, unless she was going to marry somebody else the next day. Okay. Gene Hackman MVP Award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, crew member, whoever. Uh, I don't think this one's going to be a big shock to anyone either when we uh, <laughs> award this one. Catherine Hepburn. It's got to be Catherine Hepburn. I mean, it's... Uh, we've talked about this before, of like the MVP award is the narrative sometimes, and Hepburn's narrative 
is very i mean it's like she it's she went from by at the age of 31 almost not having a film career which is insane to think that the the person Mm -hmm. who's won more oscars than anyone as an actor or actress at the age of 31 could have hung it up and gone just just retired because everyone apparently hated her so much in the in, in the in the united states because uh, they felt that she was uh like, i think there was rumors that, like she wouldn't sign autographs so people called her catherine queen of like catherine queen of or arrogance or something catherine it was a weird like they people did not like her and she uses the way to show people who catherine hepburn really was that was the idea. Is this is the first movie she had kind of been in where you're really seeing Hepburn as what Hepburn probably was in real life uh, with her comedic banter and smart wit. If this movie bombs, who who like who suffers the most? Do you think? Oh, Hepburn. Yeah, this is yeah. Grant's gonna be fine. Stewart's gonna be fine, and that's a whole other big discussion about. I mean, w- women in Hollywood of any decade of just like she has less chances than them, even though she was a two time Oscar nominee at this point in her career within seven years at the age 31 with an Oscar win that she won at 26. Um, mm-hmm. She, she put everything out there and like I said, and not just like, not just like, Oh, it's like my comeback vehicles. I'm starting it. Like she put her money on the line for the play and then essentially got less money when she sold the rights to the play just so she could have creative power over the film Mm -hmm. as you said before it's like just this movie is Catherine Hepburn's intelligence shows Catherine Hepburn's intelligence within the movie making machine known as Hollywood of the 1930 Hollywood of the golden age um so yeah Catherine Hepburn you got one more scene you want to say about her like one more scene that she's in that you want to honestly if we can just play you can just pull the clip of that little laugh that she does and just put that right here (laughs) that's 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 all i want that's okay. I'll, I'll just go back and keep listening to it it's, okay it's amazing i don't know like like sh- that had to have been her like you know there's no way george kukor <laughs> is coming out and being like do this like little flighty laugh and then like stop because she she like immediately is just like straight faced afterwards yeah it's yeah. it's uh, yeah it's amazing is it not a handsome day that begins professor all right lay off that professor yes Professor. Now you've got all the arrogance of your class, all right, haven't you? Oh, what have classes to do with it? What do they matter except for the people in them? George comes from the so-called lower class, Dexter from the upper. Well, uh-huh. Mac the Night Watchman is a prince among men, Uncle Willie is a pincher. Upper and lower, my eye. I'll take the lower, thanks. If you can't get a drawing room. What do you mean by that? My mistake. Decidedly, you're insulting. Oh, don't apologize. Well, who's apologizing? I never knew such a man. You wouldn't be likely to, dear, not from where you sit. Talk about arrogance. Tracy. What do you want? You're wonderful. (laughs) There's a magnificence in you, Tracy. Final questions. If this film was remade today, present day who do you cast oh boy okay <laughs> trying to think of like similar age age actors because yeah. someone who came to mind immediately for macaulay connor and then i had to remind myself that he's like almost 50 was <laughs> was john cho Interesting. just kind of has the okay. like physicality yeah. of, yeah. of of jimmy stewart and also has this this ability to kind of flow back and forth between 
comedy and, and drama in an amazing way. But then I was like, wait a second, Josh. No, sorry, John Cho. It, you look incredible for, for 48 for almost, or whatever yeah, old you yeah. are. But I was like about to cast you as this like 28-year-old writer. Um, uh, okay, I've got I've got my, my Dex. I've got my CK Dexter Haven. Okay. Who, I want to go ahead and lock in Glenn Powell, CK Dexter Haven. Interesting. Okay. I think Glenn Powell like is is made for these kinds of movies. Like, uh, uh, shout out to like I'm happy. You know, I hope Top Gun's going to be great and everything. But like his his comic his comedic rhythm. We've talked about uh, his performance and and everybody wants some before. But his uh, his comedic rhythm is like off the charts. And uh, and I think I think he'd be he could do either of these roles. I think. Yeah, I, I yeah I like him for I, I Mike. I like him a lot for actually. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, All right. I like him as Mike. I'll take that. All right. Veto power. Yeah. Let's do Mike. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think I think he could do both. I think yeah. he could really do both. Um. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a name. He might be a little too old, but Grant was Grant was like late thirties. Okay. And maybe he's not right for this, but I love him in comedy roles, and he doesn't do that many. But Gosling. <laughs> All right. I'm. I'm. All right. You I don't want it. Gosling to like step on my Glenn Powell choice, and I feel like they're a little <laughs> too similar looking. I gotta say, gotta throw that out. Um, yeah, I think you're gonna get a little little blowback if uh, you got <laughs> trying to choose between these two guys. <laughs> well, she's going with Gosling, right? Okay, Glenn Powell. Okay, so we're not doing Gosling. So who who else, who else do you have? I mean, I just watched I just watched the Emma adaptation last night, so Anya Taylor Joy is like fresh in my mind as playing Emma, which is basically a Tracy character. She's great. Um, I would I'd be okay with that, honestly. I don't know if I don't like she she plays as very young. I don't know if anyone would buy her as being like already That's divorced. Tr- I almost want to say it's Jennifer Lawrence too cliche to say. I'd be interested to see Jennifer Lawrence try her hand at this. I don't I don't know that she's got the rhythm. Um Oh my god, wait holy shit i've got it holy shit <laughs> phoebe waller bridge oh talking about rhythm i like that yeah i like That's... that a lot yeah Boom. okay you know what you know what you know what i'm going to bring back one of her co-stars someone she's got excellent chemistry with okay uh-huh. ck dexter haven donald glover i was gonna say that i like all those yeah I would watch that movie. <laughs> All right, you know who'd be a great Liz? Great chemistry with Glenn Powell. Oh, Zoe Deutsch. Zoe Deutsch, Liz. There, boom, lock it in. <laughs> Get their agents on the phone. Green, green light that movie. We got Zoe Deutsch, Glenn Powell, Phoebe waller I really like, if we're going directors, mm-hmm. I do. Let's let's get Autumn DeWild, who, who did the, the Emma remake, because I think... I think she she'd do some really interesting stuff with this. All right, cool. Lock that, it in. That's a movie. Also, Phoebe Waller Bridge's sister was the composer for Emma. I just saw that last night. Um, it's a great. So cast. we got all these connections. Let's make it happen. <laughs> a Cinenation production. This one came together a little bit slower. It came together organically during the episode, but this is one of um, <laughs> one of the, the most excited I've been for one of our Cinenation adaptations uh, so far. Hello, Cinenation adaptations. That's that's great. It's, it's, okay anyway uh let's see uh does this film i like the cast does the film fit with any other genres yeah like we talked about the the comedy of remarriage is almost like a subgenre of the screwball comedy yeah. uh and it's definitely it's uh, like you said it's it's one of the textbook you know one of the one of the greats within that that genre 
I mean, I think it's also a comedy of errors, very much in like the the vein of very Jane Austen kind of British. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You've got the all these high society people, and and everyone is so wrapped up in protecting their reputation that they're all lying to each other, and and everybody's having a hard time keeping keeping the lies together. Um, so that you know, that's that's its own kind of comedy to itself that that isn't necessarily part of the screwball comedy necessarily. I think that's something that this specific film kind of brings to that subgenre and I, I always enjoy those you know yeah. it's very it's very for the more modern version i feel like you can always go to like frazier it was yeah, kind yeah. of always every, every, like every episode of frazier was like that like oh we've got this person coming over and they think that i'm so and so but we can't tell them and so we got to keep it up and um some people get tired <laughs> of that but i always think it's really funny i love yeah. that when 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 seth lord walks in and they're like uncle willie and he's like what <laughs> i love that when, when Uncle Willie is like, he's like, okay, I'm going to go then. He has that whole speech about like, a man has to think of how lucky he is to have such a wonderful family. Oh, God. Uncle Willie. That's, that dude's a, uh, he's a character. We didn't talk much about Uncle Willie in this episode. <laughs> I feel like because he's a tad bit problematic in, like, in, in modern terms. But in the movie, Uncle Willie buys into the whole, I guess I'm just the dad now. I'm gonna be yeah. the, I'm gonna be the father figure. Like when Dexter shows up, he's like, "How dare you show your face here?" <laughs> shoot, like shoot, it's, shoot! It's just, it just becomes this fine. And then when he comes, when he's when they're like, "Oh, you're un- or you're the uncle," he goes, "Which means I'm 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 available or whatever." He says, yeah, "Delicious." Yeah, she, yeah, she she turns to him. She's, "Oh, so you're the father, which makes you." And he's like, "Available, available." <laughs> It's great. Uh, so how does this film fit within the screwball comedy genre? On the screwball comedy Mount Rushmore. Um, I've seen some people argue it's not a screwball comedy. It's just a romantic comedy. No, I think this is 100% a screwball comedy. You do have, like you said, they don't necessarily resolve the, the class warfare kind yeah, of yeah. stuff, but it's it's there. Yeah. You've got the comedy of remarriage. You've got this idea, and, and this is kind of innate within the comedy of remarriage, but the... the you know, it's these two people who are kind of over love for anyone, you know, they, they've they they've both got this memory of like sailing away alone together on this sailboat. But that feels like the only place in the world that love has ever really existed for either of them, because it's she's Tracy's not in love with George. It's just a political marriage, really. And um, and so it is. Yeah, it's not that kind of pure romantic comedy kind of love. It, it's definitely a, a sharp kind of sarcastic take on on love and on romance yeah that's a fair point yeah it's i mean because because you say early on i mean it says early on like george is like oh i've done this this and this and like oh are we are are we in the magazine like he's very much like he as he's new money who like wants to wants recognition that he has money now if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and marrying tracy signifies that is that i have now reached my place on the pantheon of philadelphia socialites in this suburban area of philadelphia of this rich suburban area of philadelphia uh and now i'm being um uh giving getting being recognized for it mm-hmm. um i think the dialogue i think some people like the dialogue's not as fast as other screwball comedies but i think i think when it's not as qu- quick throughout fast paced throughout as some other screwball comedies but when you have those scenes of of Grant and Hepburn at the pool by the pool mm-hmm. with Mike there, or the I mean the whole ending third act as we talked about of the did they have sex or did they not? 
that's playing like a screwball comedy. Like, mm. that's what it is. So, I think it fits perfectly. It's up there as one of the best. Dexter, would you mind doing something for me? Anything, what? Get the heck out of here. Oh, my dear Red, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be fair to you. You need me too much. Would you mind telling me just what it is you're hanging around for? Oh, no, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. Oh, no, no. Please don't go, Mr. Connor. As a writer, this ought to be right up your street. Don't miss a word. I never saw you looking better, Red. You're getting that fine, tawny look. Oh, we're going to talk about me, are we? Goody. It's astonishing what money can do for people. Don't you agree, Mr. Connor? Not too much, you know, just more than enough. Now, take Tracy, for example. There's never a blow that hasn't been softened for her. Never a blow that won't be softened. As a matter of fact, it even changed her shape. She was a dumpy little thing at one time. Only as it happens, I'm not interested in myself for the moment. Not interested in yourself? You're fascinated, Red. You're far and away your favorite person in the world. Dexter, in case you don't know... Of course, Mr. Connor, she's a girl who's generous to a fault. To a fault, Mr. Connor? Uh, Except to other people's faults. For instance, she never had any understanding of my deep and gorgeous thirst. That was your problem. Granted. But you took on that problem with me when you took me, Red. Was that on, was that is that in on the Philadelphia story? Thank you. That's that's it. Thank you. What a what a fantastic palate cleanser. After uh, <laughs> no one was murdered, there there was never a suitcase full of cash. There was never secret. <laughs> so yeah, guys, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you, you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys, come on. Give us some give us some reviews. You know, if it's good, we'll give you a little shout out. If it's bad, we'll take it into account. Maybe, you know, maybe we might have an issue with it. But, uh, you know, if it's... Make us laugh, we might put it on here. Yeah, but... yeah that's not an excuse to try and write the worst <laughs> review that you have. But, um, but no, we, we've got, you know, it's one of those things. We've got a very supportive listener group. A lot of people kind of reach out to us via various social media platforms and um you know just take that energy and and put it into put it into a little review please because that helps us with our uh, visibility and and it helps other people to find us yeah a little five-star review uh so yeah and if you don't already make sure you like us on facebook twitter and instagram and next week we'll be discussing the 1972 film what's up doc directed by pierre bogdanovich and starring ryan o'neill and barbara streisand thomas is very excited Love about this I love movie this, love this genre this it's is, great yeah it's a wonderful wonderful month of, of love and comedy but when we talk about what's up doc we will find out can you tell you know it's 1972 but can you tell a more modern story within the screwball comedy genre we'll find out next week thomas as always thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure and everyone else thank you so much for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye